I had this moment, I don't know, 1983, just while he was recording the Purple Rain record, we were walking down Melrose Avenue. It was like one o'clock in the morning. And I used to dance and he knew that I was a dancer when I was younger. That's what I wanted to be was a dancer. And, and he asked me to show him how to do a pirouette. And so it was just the two of us on Melrose Avenue at one o'clock in the morning and teaching him how to do a pirouette. And for me to be with a man who's asking me to teach him how to do a pirouette, that was something I had never seen, nor have I ever seen it since, particularly not a straight man. And one where you're in a courting relationship where you're, you know, being intimate and you're being physical with one another. And then he says, teach me how to do a pirouette. If that's not holding on to and feeling pretty powerful behind your androgyny, I don't know what else is. Who was Prince? He had other parallel lives going on. I talked to a girl who he would go roller skating with her. I knew when he was monogamous and I knew when he wasn't. I guess it was a relationship and we were working together. He didn't really want to mix up the two, but it was already happening. He was the best pimp I've ever seen. He was a better female than most females. He was controlling. I want you to be my wife. The foreplay was great. Yes, he bathed me. He brushed my hair. It wasn't like having sex with a man. It was bigger than that. He was the closest thing that I'd ever had to having a woman. Welcome to Chapter 7 of Who Was Prince. Chapter 7, you are flying aboard the Seduction 747, a chapter about Prince's love life. We talked to several women who dated him about what it was like to love him and be loved by him and why one of his girlfriend's mothers said Prince was the best pimp she ever saw. I'm your host, Torre, and if you've ever listened to one of Prince's epic love songs and watched him move at a show and wondered what it would be like to be his lover, what it would be like to have Prince propose to you, then listen to the first woman he ever proposed to, Susanna Melvoin. And he's standing at my bed, sort of looking at the bed. And I walk back in and he said, do you sleep in this? Yeah, I sleep in that. There's this huge dip in the center <laughs> of the mattress. It's just, it's like, it goes like this. And I was like, well, I only sleep on one side. So I, you know, <laughs> doesn't, isn't that the only thing that matters? I only, I'm only on one side. And he was like, hmm. And the following day, there was a mattress and a box spring at the door. Those kinds of things start to happen. And then I get this phone call one night, you know, a few days after that. Can you come to my hotel room? Sure. They met in 1983 when she was 17 and working as a receptionist for Geffen Records, the label run by the music biz legend David Geffen. At the company Christmas party, she's feeling awkward and self-conscious, but then she saw Prince with Vanity, and she was a fan, and Lisa Coleman, who was like a sister to her, was already in the revolution. Wendy wasn't in yet, but she felt too nervous to say something, so Susanna went to a payphone and called Lisa. For all you folks out there who don't know what a payphone is, there's such a <laughs> thing as a payphone. Um, so I went to find a payphone, put my 10 cents in, called Wendy and Lisa. He's here with vanity. He's here. Like, do, should I say something to him? Yeah, go and say hello. So I'm sort of gingerly walking up and I'm thinking, is this not a good idea? 
like, do I not say something to him? Like, I'm getting this feeling like, don't walk any closer, but I just felt compelled. I was like, you, you don't understand. I've got family. They all know you. You should know me. 17, dumb. Um, but I walk up and I say, excuse me, um, my name's Susanna, and you know my sister Lisa and my twin sister Wendy, and he says, hello. I'm just... And he's just staring at me, waiting for me to, 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 okay, fill the space, say some more. But vanity comes in, and she's like, look at how cute she is. Look at those chubby cheeks. She And she's like, she comes up and she touches my cheeks. Look at how sweet and cute and chubby those cheeks are. And, of course, all I could think of is myself, like, three hours earlier looking at the mirror going, oh, my God, you're just it's 17. You've got cheeks out to here. You just, you know, like, it was my worst nightmare, right? And she, of course, was saying, I'm big mama here, you know, careful. So I was like, really nice to meet you. Just wanted to say hello. Backed up. I was like, oh boy, that just seemed like <laughs> such a bad idea. Um but it wasn't a bad idea because, you know, it was within a few weeks that um, he was back in town and calling Lisa and Wendy. And we were, you know, picking him up at the airport. Wendy and Lisa would start first. Like Wendy, Lisa had a car, this great car we used to call Betty Flounder. It was this peach beautiful thing. <laughs> anyway, drive to the airport, pick him up, bring him back to our place. Whenever Prince was in L.A., he stayed with Wendy and Lisa and Susanna at their place. It's this just an itty-bitty place. It didn't have real doors. It had saloon doors, and like you just look under and see, oh, there's a naked person under there. I mean, just no privacy, just silliness. But he would come and stay with us. And he would stay on our couch and... We had many, many funny nights where I'd be in my room, which was right off the living room, and there's the couch five feet from my my bed, and you hear him (laughs) saying, because we had two Persian cats, and they would subsequently jump on him (laughs) in the middle of the night, and you hear him like, Lisa, Wendy... Can you come get the cats? (laughs) So after that, they started dating and getting closer and closer. And the studio was really close to where we lived. And he would say to the girls, you know, can you come down? I need you to do, you know, add guitar, add keyboards, or I need you guys to sing on this. I need I need your help. You know, to be in the studio. So they'd be going back and forth. And then I would find myself going with them when I'd come home from work. I'd be like, can I go down the studio or he would say, you know, bring Susanna. She's, she can come down. And so I found myself going down there a lot. And one particular day that I was there, um, I'd gone into the bathroom, finishing up my business, and I hear click, 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 down the hallway. Knock, knock, knock. I open up the door, and he just barrels through the door, closes the door behind me, I'm up against the wall, and he just starts to kiss me all over, all over. 
I can't stop thinking about you. And I'm like, wow, uh, can I wash my hands? Uh, <laughs> you think I had my pants up? You know, this is sort of the, the dichotomy in his, in his character and in his soul. Um, he was incredibly vulnerable. And to protect himself, there was that sort of the anima that would come out, you know. And then Jung talks about these sort of archetypes that, that are within us. And I do believe that Prince was sort of personified in these archetypes. So he was incredibly male when it came to protecting his vulnerability because vulnerability was a weakness um it wasn't a tenderness to be seen or a uh or, or a softness i think it, that when we, he was around women and particularly the women that he loved that vulnerable part of him could be the, those walls to his vulnerable parts could be broken down a bit and it was easier for him to relate to women but it's not as though he was willing to show you how vulnerable he was. You just sort of, I think that the way he presented himself physically was so female. So it's a visceral thing with him. Like he, he dressed a certain way. He always smelled beautiful. He loved the ritual of getting dressed. He loved the rituals of uh, adorning himself. He loved courtship and he loved that he could play female in a courtship situation but then he could be very male when he would finally sort of conquer you it was complicated and beautiful and i'm not a hundred percent convinced that he knew how what or what he was doing and how powerful it i mean he did know how powerful it was he continued to do it he had incredible power over everybody and i think that that maybe that androgynous aspect of him was the thing that drew so much of men and women to him. I think he related to people who are, were more androgynous as well. I think that that was something that played true. He was a better female than most females in terms of his look, in terms of how he carried himself. He was very connected to his uh, feminine side, very, very connected no possible way that that guy was not the most male he was certainly more male dominant than he was female but it, i think he was the most female the way in which he presented himself to the world but in terms of how he related to the world was very male there's that machismo thing that he also had big time and then things got serious I get a call from Alan Leeds, his manager, saying he needs you to come to New York. It's like, well, I thought he wanted to just get away. I'm tired. What? what? <laughs> he needs you in New York. So I get on a flight and go to New York, get to the hotel, and we have a beautiful reunion. He's sort of a different guy. There's something that's shifted. And I sense the shift, and I'm not sure, but I was all for it anyway. Whatever it was, I was for it. And we had a beautiful night, and then the following day, he said, you know, do you want to get out? Do you want to go shop? I'm like, yeah, what girl doesn't want to go shop? It was like, yeah. So we get in the car, and he says to the limo driver, um, do you know any uh, jewelry stores nearby? And the guy says, yeah, as a matter of fact, just up here on such and such is Van Cleef and Arpel. Stop there. So right in front of the store, we get out and open the door, and they're all waiting. 
They're all waiting in there. They knew. They knew. And he was like, show us your best rings. And they take us back to this small little room, tiny, you know, um, you know, down these hallways to this room. And they bring out the boxes of these beautiful rings with the lights that are all, you know, you know, being reflected off of mirrors and velvet and all this stuff. And I'm looking like, wow, that one's pink. And that one's yellow. Is that called? That's a canary diamond. Like, oh, wow. Well, what's that one? What's that one? And then we see this beautiful white diamond and I, oh that well that's lovely try it on so i tried on and it's like fits beautifully How big? it's kind of beautiful six carats holy yeah it was enormous <laughs> yeah i know liz taylor it was beautiful so i was like wow well that's beautiful and i take it off and i give it back to the lady and he says no 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 put it back on and i, I kind of looked at him like like it's got to be really expensive just put it on so I put it on, and he was like, okay, we'll take it. We walk out. That's it. There's no, you know, like, will you marry me? There's no proposal. But you're going, what does this mean? I'm thinking to myself, good Lord, you just spent a shit ton of money on a ring. Wow. You've got some excess cash? Like, that's a big, that's a big thing. And I wasn't going to be like, look, you just bought me this beautiful engagement ring. Where's the on your knee? I mean, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to spoil what I knew he was trying to create a moment, right? And I was sensitive to, enough to know that I wasn't going to be flat-footed and make him say, you know, dude, you know, huh, give it to me. Say it. Wasn't going to do that. It just wasn't, it's not me any, to this day, it's not my, you didn't say it, you didn't say it. So, but it's beautiful and he's super excited and he's all sparkly about it and we get back to the hotel and we fly to Paris the next day. We spend a week in Paris and we're staying at the uh, Crillon and over that overlooks the Arc de Triomphe. And we've had a beautiful week together, playing guitar, walking the streets, just being what I had never experienced of him before, of being completely and totally devoted to me in that moment, one week, not recording, just me. And I'd never experienced him that way before. He'd never, it was always a combination of getting in the studio, working, you, we fit all of that in together. But this was like nothing else but me and him. And at some points he would say, let's call Wendy and play guitar. And so we would call my sister and Lisa and we'd be each have our acoustic guitar and we'd be playing stupid, silly songs. And we'd be like, in my mind, I actually thought to myself, he sees me. He's seeing me. He's seeing my closeness to my sister. He's accepting our relationship. He's bringing, he's like, it seemed to normalize something that I hadn't seen him do before. He sort of pushed away before. He was, you know, kept me hidden a lot. And it was all of a sudden, he was bringing all of us together. You know, me, Wendy, Lisa, we were all together. Even though we were in Paris, it was this unit. And I, he was really devoted to that. And so we'd spent this week. And then one morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, he comes into the hotel room. He'd been up all night. And he sort of you know, has the balcony doors open. And he, like, yeah, what? He's like, yeah, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. And I kind of sit up and I look at him and he's just pale. He's just pale and like chalky white and looks frightened. I'm like, are you okay? Did you see something? 
He's like, just come here, come here. And we go stand out on the balcony, and he's sort of walking, and he comes sit up, come sit up here. And so I kind of sit up on the top there, and I'm sort of looking at him. And uh, I said, what is it? And he said, um, well, um, I don't want you to be the lead in the movie. In Under the, the Cherry, cherry Moon, I was the original the lead, Right, he wanted me to do, yes. For the role that... Kristen Scott Thomas. I said, oh, okay, uh, I want you to be my wife. Of course, I said to him, well, if, of course. And we were engaged. I want you to be my wife. I want to be your wife. What did you do after that? We went to Nice. We went to the south of France because we'd just done location scouting a couple of weeks before. And we knew where the shooting was going to be. He had to go do some more scouting of the location um, on a couple of couple of spots on the south of France. So we flew to, to the south of France. I mean, I know you're thrilled because you love him. But surely part of you is also saying, what is this going to be? Because he's a strange guy. No, I he's didn't think cheated a lot. No, no, I didn't think any of it. What did you think? This is great, and we're gonna trawl up off into the sunlight together. Nope, I was living in the moment. I'm None happy right here, right now. Right here, right this now. This is good today. Yep. That's how you had to be in order to be with Prince in the moment and accepting of whatever you get. He was never going to be a normal boyfriend. He wasn't monogamous. He was with many, many women. I knew when he was monogamous, and I knew when he wasn't. So being in a relationship with him was complicated. My own experience with him was, you know, beautiful at times and, you know, and really hard in other ways, you know, because it was his way. Always everything ha- it was his way. If he's having a really difficult time, tell me about it. That wouldn't happen. You know, that would come out in other ways. That would come out in the music. That would come out in the, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours straight of recording. It wouldn't be, you know, let's sit down and have this conversation about this stuff that connects us. It was very layered and it had to come out in physical ways. It came out in um, the music. And that can be super complicated. Dating Prince was always super complicated. Singer Jill Jones said they were on and off from the early 80s until the early 90s. And there was a lot of pain wrapped up in that. Yeah, we always had a really weird relationship and we'd always end up coming back and forth. But yeah, we were just really young and it went on and on. And even when he was engaged to people and whatever, he talked to me a lot about stuff. But yeah, it just became really weird when I would like start having boyfriends and relationships and then each person would try to get the other person back in a weird way. So I don't know. It was it was strange. It was great. I mean, fantastic. It was but it was definitely all centric around music and, you know, like flying out of somewhere on tour really fast. Like you take the jet and you'd go um, instead of staying with the band, you would leave. You guys would leave and like fly somewhere before everybody else and have just a few days quiet or whatever. But as lovely as it could be when you were alone, you also knew that you were never really, really alone. He always had several other women. It was actually really hurtful at times because every girl knew. Every girl was aware of the other girl. 
And it's just such a bizarre thing. And when we were all on the bus together, then you'd be sitting there like going, okay, if she's not with him and she's not and I'm not, who the hell is he with tonight? Do you know what I mean? So that was kind of a strange thing. And my mother used to always be like, I can't believe you girls at your age are going through this shit. And she was right. I mean, we were. It was, I mean, I just don't even know what to say. So why did they put up with it? I don't know. I mean, everybody just adored him. He was kind of irresistible. And he also made you feel like you could do anything. They started when Jill was young. She was a background singer for Tina Marie when Tina started opening up for Prince's Dirty Mind tour. Over the course of the tour and us staying at the same hotels, and we all started sharing cars to the venue and sound checks, and then he and I became friends in a really antagonistic way. It was very kid-like, very childlike, so we would pick on each other all the time. He would say he was from Minneapolis, and I'd say, oh, where's that, up in the North Pole? And so it was always some kind of ribbing going on. And they had this really weird game where one night I was, like, hanging out with Andre. Andre Simone, who was playing guitar with Prince. And some of the other members of the band, and Andre said, are you married? And I was like, I'm not married. I'm 18. I mean, I was like, who's going to be married? And he goes, Prince told me you were married. And I was like, oh, okay. So I kind of knew right then that there was something between us. After the tour, they stayed in touch, and when Prince went to L.A., Jill was like his unofficial chauffeur. Yeah, I mean, when he would come into town, I was always driving him places. Lady cab driver. Oh, lady cab driver happened because I was driving him everywhere. And he'd bought this new BMW. He showed up at my house with it. And then, for some reason, I was always driving that car, and I even overheated it coming up my hill because I used to live in Mount Olympus with my parents. I was driving him all over L.A., Malibu, showing him things. And even when we went back to Minneapolis, I was driving him because I think his license got suspended because the police were always on those guys once they started getting really nice cars. And they had a lot of speeding tickets. She was driving him and his girlfriends around until he started to pick her up. We just started, like, meeting at Flippers, this roller rink, and we would meet at, like, Dunkin' Donuts, like in the middle of the night. Everything was quite random. He would call my house in the middle of the night or at two, and I still lived at home with my parents. So it became kind of quite rogue. He would then, you know, pull up in his black car and sit in the driveway, and I'd run out of the house. And it was, yeah, he was just quirky. He was unlike anybody else that I had ever dated. I was only 18. So, I mean, when it first started, so the reality is, what did I know? I was still used to boys from high school coming over with flowers and coming at the right time and not Prince. He'd show up at three in the morning and it was just like, who's this rebel out the door? I'm going, bye. You know, it's like, I'm leaving the house. You know, it was crazy. In a way, it was like a rebellion. And I guess I was a little bit crazy too, kind of wild, Betty Blue type of personality, you know, so it, it worked both ways. It wasn't like I was all nice and, like, innocent. I had my moments and kept him on edge. She says the relationship and the work, the singing and the creating, all of that grew intertwined. Like, we did a song called For Lust. And, you know, a lot of our our songs in general, if you listen to they're a little bit primal. They're not so love songy, and they're very wanton, like... You know, violet blue, what's a woman to do across the street waits a man she's promised to? Well, you know, those kind of songs were 
there was a sadness to a lot of things around me and him, but then this primal thing of like a physicality. And I think that got in the way all the time, a lot. Then when we couldn't be physical, then it was difficult to work together without being physical. So it was difficult for each one to have their own lives because I wasn't necessarily a cheater with people that I was dating, you know, so it was, it was interesting, but yet he would have whoever. And, you know, it was very strange. I said, you're becoming physiologically confused because there's just too many people, too many bodies, too much. What does she mean by physiologically confused? It's like a map. Our bodies are maps. I think that particularly for women, I think you remember there's a sense memory attached to, you know, somebody's entering your body, your domain, your everything. And there's a certain surrender of that. And you should have this. You are like the temple they go into. It's like they're the temple looking for, you know, people to, you know, I don't know what, how to explain it, but I think that I think you can become confused. But Prince knew how to lure her back with sweetness. Like I had a surgery once and he sent me a ton of like balloons and kids toys and candy necklaces. And it was like everything was in a box of like children, like I was 10 years old. Something that caught my eye. And he would just do that. And you'd go, who does that? And meanwhile, your mom's sitting in the corner going, oh, my God, she's going to make the wrong decision again. You know. Yeah, because my mom always thought that when he was sleeping with women, it was actually to control them. And when he wasn't, you guys were working. And she goes, he's the best pimp I've ever seen. He was like the iceberg slim of his day. She said he juggled women in many ways, but they weren't really blinded. I knew when he would give you busy work. And if you had busy work to do, like, you know, go find a new apartment or go find a house or something like that. It was like, okay, what's happening on the other side of the world? You know? They knew what was going on. They knew he had lots of women. And somehow... They appreciated their status in his virtual harem. But then Prince also had this bizarre habit of, I guess there were the elite ones, and then there were just the one-nighters. So I guess maybe there was some solace or comfort for those of us who felt like we were in the elite group. (laughs) I don't know. But there was something to that. There had to have been. Of course, as she grew older, the appeal of that faded. But it became a little cheap after a while to see what he entertained. And sometimes it became a little bit disgusting. So I could tolerate the the girls from the earlier days, but the girls that started to traipse in and out or you're walking in a room and you're like going, who is it? But you could feel who it was going to be. That was something I just couldn't live with. It was too much. She said that when he started dating the Hollywood star Kim Basinger, that was too much for her. But even when she met someone new, the connection between her and Prince remained strong. When he was out with Kim Basinger, that was a little bit like, oh, my God, how many of these do we have to keep going through? And I had had boyfriends intermittently in between. And there was always this tension between us. And he was always still my best friend at times. A few years after they stopped dating for the final time, she saw Prince at some event she was talking to Apollonia and Susan Moonsey, who was one of his early girlfriends, and Anna Fantastic, and other women who had been Prince's girlfriends, but had become close friends of hers. Apollonia was sitting there, and she's like going, oh, Jill had the most beautiful wedding. It was just fantastic, and her husband is German, and just great. And I said, you know what, Prince? I said, my God, all these women 
have become some of like my closest friends. Like it, it's amazing. All of like, I just have my heart. Like these women are my best friends. He was just like sitting there like gobsmacked. Like, are you kidding me? And he turned and he went, oh, so now you're okay with it? <laughs> Which was <laughs> still the best thing because I was like, he still got that little saltiness with me, which was great because, oh, now you're okay with it. I was like, yeah, I, I figured it out. Yeah, it was funny. One of Jill's best friends is a singer named Anna Garcia, who was 15 when she met Prince backstage at a show in London in 1986. I was already, you know, singing. I sang my whole life. And um, I was in theater school. I was in conversation with BMG um, Germany for a record deal. The conversation was more kind of flirty, and then everybody went back to the hotel. I ended up in Prince's suite, and then we talked about music and the music business, and he said I should not even think about doing anything in the music business. (laughs) He was like, you should just focus on school and do that and forget the music business. It's not a good place. I was kind of sassy. I was like, you have no right to tell me that. I'm going to do it anyway. You know, if anybody would have told you not to get into the music business, you wouldn't have listened to them. You would have still gone ahead and done it. So I'm still going to do it. You know, I'm not going to listen to you. This is my passion. This is what I'm doing. Really, it's nothing to do with you. He just said it was really difficult and it's not a good place for a, you know, beautiful young girl and... He just said the business was not a good thing, really. And I'd be better off going to school and getting a degree. (laughs) But soon after, they started working on songs together. Almost all of Prince's girlfriends were able to interact with him musically. And with Anna, who would soon be renamed Anna Fantastic, Prince in the studio was super supportive. You know, I felt like I could do no wrong. Like, everything I did, he was like, yes, yes. He was very um, positive. It wasn't like, ah, oh, that's not right, or do this. Or the way he he brought it, like, every take, it was like, that was great. And now, you know, do it this way or do it that way. I never felt uncomfortable or like I was, you know, not getting it right. Like, you would imagine that you'd be quite nervous in the studio with Prince, you know, because he's obviously so talented. But I wasn't. He made me feel really comfortable. She said he taught her to really feel the music. To really go deep and pull out your feelings, to put feeling into it, to not just sing like some robot singing the words and the melody and getting it right, but more to know what you're saying, mean the words. Once they began dating in the late 80s, it became a little complicated because they were also working together. It was weird because I guess it was a relationship and we were working together and it kind of got confusing because I think he didn't really want to mix up the two, but it was already happening. (laughs) So there was like this kind of possessive side of the relationship. They were together constantly. When we were together, it was just me and him. Like it was not parties and rock style lifestyle and events and all this stuff it was just me and him at the house going to the studio back to the house going to the studio back to the house sometimes going to dinner that was it we were just when we were together it was 24 7. 
She says it was not an equal relationship. Well, he liked his own way. It was, you know, my way or the highway, basically, but in a very kind way. He was controlling. You know, I had uh, gotten an offer to do a movie in Europe, and he said, well, if that's what you want to do, then you need to be there. And it was kind of like, I knew what that meant. It's either you do that or you're with me. She said the relationship kind of fizzled out after two years. That might have happened because Maite was coming into his life. In her book, she said it was hard to be his girlfriend. He traveled constantly, worked insane hours, and you couldn't just call him. You had to wait for him to call you. She knew that there were other women, but at that time, as his girlfriend, she knew she was ascending in his life. She said, quote, Prince's top girlfriend was always in Minneapolis. When you came to Minneapolis, you were the girl on her way in. And when you left Minneapolis, you were the girl on her way out. She said he had a lot of women, and a few of them were very important to him. He could make any girl feel like a princess, for a moment anyway. I talked to several women who dated him about what it was like to be with him. I mean, this is one of the most sexual artists in history, so what was it like to actually be with him sexually? These women spoke to me because I promised them anonymity, and I asked a few friends of mine to voice their words. Let me put it this way. The foreplay was great. Great. The foreplay was unreal. And it wasn't like, oh, oh, he could give great head or whatever. It It wasn't that. It was the psychological aspect of getting you there. There. It was the way he the would, way he would smell. Being with him was always intimidating for me because it was Prince. It was Prince because it was Prince. He was creative, but he's not, not as wild as everyone thinks. I heard that he was with, with other women, but with me, he was very gentle, very gentle and thoughtful. He was the closest thing that I'd ever had to having a woman to being with a woman. He makes you feel safe and protected and taken care of and. He makes you feel girly, like a woman, but he's also in touch with you in a way... Like a woman. ...that's very feminine, while simultaneously making, making you, you feel, feel girly. girly. He was the most patient man I'd... I've ever been with. And the most complicated in terms of being in bed with him. He was the most sensitive, the most androgynous. The most androgynous. And this perfect balance of... Male and female energy. He's a true Gemini. True Gemini. He's masculine, but he's in touch with his, his femininity. It's complicated. It wasn't like having sex with a man. It was bigger than that. It was erotic. erotic. And very and very androgynous, androgynous, if you know what I mean. Most guys don't pick up on small things or details or... Or pay attention to little things. They just don't. Don't. But he reminds me of a woman or of being in a relationship with a woman. In every subtle action you do is noticed without having to be explained. He gets the way that you gesture. The way your eyes move down or... He can sense insecurity. He's also very... He's also very masculine, but not not in a dude way, in a man way, like strong. strong. Masculine. He did like to take baths. baths. He wanted you to... He wanted you to bathe him. And he, and wanted, he wanted to, to bathe you. you. He would be pouring a bunch of stuff in the tub... And then we'd get in, and it was just great. It was just great. Perfect. Have a glass of wine. Not much went on. He didn't want to do didn't anything else. Didn't want to do anything else. It was like you could kind of tell, oh, this guy just wants to hang out in a tub with you like a girlfriend. He doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to do anything. Okay. He just wants to be a girl. 
I thought that was adorable. And I felt safe with that, too. Safe with it. Yes, he bathed me. He brushed my hair. He likes baths and bubbles. And products. We did take baths together. Mm. Brushed my hair in the bath. He ran the bath. He put the bubbles in. He took your clothes off. He took your clothes off. He washed you. He washed your hair. It was a whole procedure procedure and process. He He put lotion on you after. Yeah. He'd give you a robe. It was worshipful? It was worshipful. Sweet Sweet and sensitive. I don't mind if someone wants to wash Wash my my hair. He was into girls having experiences with each other around him. Threesomes. He had threesomes, and he liked that quite a bit. He had girls have sex in front of him, and he liked that a lot. A lot. Okay, let's go back to Susanna, who got engaged to Prince in Nice, France. We just never got married. There was no talk of them. There was no even no talk of a wedding. You never did anything to plan the big ceremony? My version of planning was we bought a house in Minneapolis, right up the street from Paisley Park. But like 200 acres of land, this beautiful property. And while he was finishing filming, I was in Minneapolis gutting the house, getting the studio together, working on all, you know, furnishing the house, making it our home. So in my mind, that was my wedding, that was my future. I was creating a home. So that was fine for me. The hoopla of being married was not the, that wasn't the thing to define my, at at the time. And I remember talking to him on the phone saying, the house is done, the house is done, I can't wait for you to see it. And him walking in and seeing the house and just be like, this is our house. This is where we're going to start it all. You know, it was kind of beautiful. I mean, that to me was my moment with him. That was the wedding for me to see him walk into the space that I created for us. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the first. Elizabeth the first, the podcast, wherever you listen. I found out so much that makes sense to me now, why we'd have these moments where he needed to get away and he would get on a flight and he'd fly to LA or fly wherever. Be like, oh, you're not just working. (laughs) I don't know what you're doing. He said, I just don't think I'm ready for that to be living with you. Mm. And he goes, I'll do what I can to make you comfortable, but I think I need the space here. And broke my heart. Broke my heart. Within a few months, he's on the road with the sign of the times, and I'm flying all over the world to hang out with him and be with him. And, you know, and I'm sure he's with other women and they have no idea that, like, oh, Susanna's in town, you know, she's with him, you know. And I'm like, this went up for years, years. What was the relationship after the relationship like? Because you were still friends. Oh, yeah. You know, it was, I always knew when I was with him that he was, um, there was always an intense 
kind of like it was like visceral thing. Like he loved to be hugged by me. And a matter of fact, in like 1992 or 93, he called me in the middle of the night. He said, "Can I come over?" I told him how to get to my place, and he comes in and he said, "I just came here because I needed to get a hug from you." And so I wrapped him in my arms, gave him this big giant hug, and he just sort of melted into my arms. And you know, was sort of smelling the back of my neck, and he was like, "Nobody, nobody hugs me the way you do. I need, I needed to be hugged." It was heartbreaking, and I was like, "What's going on?" I couldn't figure out like what's going on with him right now. What was happening during that time? I don't know. But he was conflicted about something, and um, you know, that was who stayed for about a, an hour. And then when he left, he stopped at the door and he looked at me, and he was like, "I'm coming back for you." I'm coming back for you. And I said, okay, I'll be here. You know where I am. So, and I'd get those, you know, I'm, I don't want to say that I'm like, you know, the only one. I mean, I'm sure there's other women that have had the same experience. Maybe not. I don't know. I just don't know. And I know that m my relationship with him was um, layered, complicated, beautiful, heartbreaking, and never to be. Throughout his life, Prince struggled to create lasting relationships. After he got close to marrying Susanna, in 1990, Prince started a new love journey when a 15-year-old Maite Garcia went to his concert in Barcelona. She had long dreamt of marrying him. She was on vacation in Spain with her parents and her sister, and the family had debated whether to go to see Celia Cruz in concert or Prince. Dad wanted to see Celia. The ladies wanted to see Prince. They ended up in Barcelona, in the front row, where Prince noticed Maite. But they didn't talk that night. Maite and her family were then living in Germany, where her father, who was named John, just like Prince's father, was flying helicopters for the U.S. Army. They went to another Prince concert a week or so later in Germany. And at that show, backstage, Maite's mom gave Prince a videotape of Maite belly dancing, which led to him calling the mom to ask if he could talk to Maite. She said yes, and they began talking on the phone from time to time. In 1991, the day after Maite turned 18, she was on a plane to Minneapolis. In 1995, they got engaged on the anniversary of the Barcelona concert where he first saw her. Their 1996 wedding was very small, about a dozen people or less, in a tiny Minneapolis chapel with helicopters worrying above outside. There were flowers that had been flown in from Japan. Prince wore a custom-made white suit. Gianni Versace sent Maite a dress, but she chose a white dress designed by Debbie McGowan. The ceremony was followed by a small reception at Paisley and a honeymoon in Hawaii. Maite had a significant impact on Prince's life. At that point, Prince was estranged from his father, John, and Maite did the careful, sensitive, emotional work that was necessary to mend the relationship and help bring the two back together. When I interviewed Prince, I asked him how he knew Maite was the one. He said, God tells you who's the one. If you don't have a relationship with God, you're in trouble. That gives you something to put everything in line. I asked him if he enjoyed being married, and he said, I'm not afraid of the rain anymore 
because my wife built me a garden. Now the lightning and thunder put energy in the vegetables and give me energy to talk to you. Shortly after marrying, Maite got pregnant, and Prince immediately began to change to welcome the baby. Prince sampled the baby's heartbeat for a song on his album Emancipation, and he transformed Paisley Park from a solidly white building inside and out into the eye-popping wonderland it was when I got there. It looked like a music lover's Alice in Wonderland. On one wall was painted a flock of golden doves seeming to tumble down from the sky. All over the place there were oversized comfy chairs of all colors on pillars topped with gold discs. Underneath were thick blue carpeting dotted with zodiac symbols. Outside in the back there was a child's jungle gym that looked like it had never been played on. In our interview, Prince said, There was no color in this building before I got married. It was all white with gray carpet. For 15 years, I was just in the studio every day, on a grind, not even thinking about it. But early on in the pregnancy, doctors knew the baby was not well. They wanted to conduct tests, but no matter how much doctors pushed, Prince and Maite refused, saying, God will take care of us. They didn't even want to know the baby's gender. Throughout the pregnancy, doctors urged the couple to let them check on the baby, but Prince continuously said no. We have faith. It's all in God's hands. It's God's will. But they were not prepared for what was to come. Maite wrote about the baby's birth in her book, quote, I don't know how to describe the look on my husband's face. Pure joy, pure love, pure gratitude. I'd seen this face when he stood in a stadium with 48,000 screaming fans. I'd seen him experience the ecstasy of creative genius. None of that compared to the look I saw on his face in this moment when he became a father. And then they held the baby up in the glare of those harsh lights. The pure elation on my husband's face turned to pure terror. It was as if we were at the center of a whirlpool and the room was turning in on itself, contorting, twisting everything. In her book, Maite describes in detail the many issues the baby was dealing with. The child had multiple severe deformities. Its eyes were outside its sockets. Its hands and feet were web-like. It had no anus. The baby, a boy, was born with Pfeiffer syndrome, a very rare genetic disorder, and the most severe level of the syndrome. They named him Amir, which means prince in Arabic and also relates back to Maite's mother's stage name as a belly dancer, Amira, which is princess in Arabic. But nothing about the birth was common. Doctors took the child to intensive care right away. Prince called in the best specialist he could get. Maite says Prince was filled with boundless love. She writes, quote, He was Amir's father, a protective papa bear, thinking only of his son. From the first moment of our son's life to the last, my husband thought nothing of himself, his vanity, his ego, his needs. All that had been stripped away. All that remained was a solid core of unconditional love. There was a lot of surgery and a lot of fighting for his life. But eventually, both Maite and Prince decided they had to let him go. They took him off of life support, and Prince brought his ashes home in an urn. Prince said that Comeback, a short, lonely, beautiful ballad from his acoustic album The Truth, the fourth disc of the crystal ball set, is about the child. He sings, Spirits come and spirits go. Some stick around for the after show. I don't have to say I miss you because I think you already know. The refrain is, if you ever lose someone dear to you, never say the words they're gone. They'll come back. 
Maite once said, I had him to term, I held him, he lived for a week. It's hard to have that life inside of you and it not continue. It's still really hard. I still think about him. Another time she said, losing a baby is a terrible thing. Some couples are brought closer together after the loss of a child. Others are driven apart. In our case, the latter happened. A friend who was close to him said that the experience left Prince broken. Losing the baby hurt him deeply. Losing a child is something some people never recover from. After losing the baby, Prince became a devoted Jehovah's Witness, turning to religion to help ease his pain. His close friend Larry Graham had helped lead him there. In our interview, Prince told me that he and Larry had had a multi-year argument about spirituality, and Prince said Larry had won. Graham was a legendary bassist who had played with Sly and the Family Stone and led Graham Central Station. And of course, he played with Prince. Some say Prince felt lost in the world after losing his baby and became a witness as a way of trying to find himself again. Maite was unwilling to become a witness, and that, among other things, contributed to the end of their marriage. They divorced in 2000. A year later, Prince married Manuela Testolini, but they divorced in 2006. Prince wrote and sang passionately about love, but in his real life, it was hard to find. Prince's struggle to create a family in his real life is mirrored by his inability to turn his bands into families. Several members of his band said that he wanted his band to be and feel like little families, but he didn't know how to create that environment. He wasn't parental or paternal. He didn't care enough about other people's feelings to give them the love and attention that would spark familial love. He'd call people in his circle at four in the morning and say, come make me a hamburger or come jump on this song for me, or he'd demand the band be vegan. But his love was one-sided, people said. He wanted love and devotion, but he didn't know how to give it. Or maybe he did, but he was scared to give it because he couldn't trust, because his parents had scarred him. Eventually, the pain of breaking up with Susanna was too much for Prince, and he wrote a song about it, and would turn out to be one of Prince's saddest, deepest, and most honest songs ever. The engineer for the session where Prince created Wally, a song you've never heard, was Susan Rogers. That engagement was a big deal. It was a big deal because they were, they were starting to make plans for a wedding, and Wendy was starting to try to wrap her head around the notion of being of Prince being her brother-in-law, and it was a big deal. And then, of course, it meant really committing to living together. Susanna had been living at the house uh, in Chanhassen, but Prince was finally getting that you know he'd have to integrate his life with this person. And there were fights, and then there was making up, and it was everything that a couple goes through when, they, when they're really close. It, became clear to Prince anyway that this, he wasn't going to be able to do it. It wasn't going to work. So he moved Susanna out of his house and into a condominium. And, and Susanna was pretty devastated. She was really hurt. And so she hung in there as long as she could, but then the revolution broke up, and so Wendy was gone, and then it became clear this just isn't going to happen. So Susanna finally just packed up and left. And Prince was hurt. After things like that, I would, I would wait to see is there going to be a song about it. And sure enough, there was one day that it was just the two of us, and this was before Paisley Park was fully debugged and fully online. So he called me over to the house, and I came over, and he gave me the instructions, which was typical 
uh, he'd tell me in advance, here's what I want set up, so he could just move from instrument to instrument. So it was the drums and the piano upstairs, right above the studio. The studio was in like a, a downstairs basement bedroom type thing. Uh, so right above us was the living room, and that's where the piano was. So mic the piano and, and give me the long reverb, which was what we would do for, for ballads, and get them all set up, guitars tuned and everything. So I did. He came down with the lyrics written, and he just moved from instrument to instrument, doing piano and drums. And this song is unique in that it had a long, prolonged intro. In the intro, uh, there weren't verses so much, not sung verses. They were, he was just speaking, and he's talking to his friend Wally. If you remember, Wally was one of his backup dancers. And uh, he's saying to Wally, um, hey, those are nice glasses. Can I try them on? And he says, because I'm going to a party tonight and I want to look so clean. Um, so he's having this one-sided conversation with Wally, and he says, you know, I want to look good because my woman left me. And um, maybe tonight I can meet somebody new. And then he goes into the chorus. And the chorus are big chords, big, big chords. And the melody is just one long refrain of the word, Oh, my, la, dee, da, which morphs into Oh, my, melody, and Oh, my, melody. And he talked about it. He said, you know, the French word melody means sickness. And isn't that funny that it's similar to la dee, da and it's similar to melody. Um, he would just repeat that over and over, and he stacked backing vocals, and he stacked the piano. And, uh, it was really huge. Do you remember Stevie Wonder's um, It Ain't No Use? Do you remember how the uh, chorus is just one word? It's just O, one word. It's so beautiful, and it's an O of, of pain. That's all there is to say. It's just, oh, this hurts. This was similar to that in that the chorus was just, oh, my la-di-da, oh, my... Oh, my melody, oh, my malady, my malady, is what he would re repeat. So it was just an expression of pain. It was just like an O. Oh. And then the song finally came back down, and there was a coda. And he's talking to Wally, and he says, Wally, you can have your glasses back. I don't need them. I don't really feel like going out tonight. And the, the actor goes home. And that was it. So we recorded it, and he had me just make a copy, just do a mix and make a copy onto cassette. We took the cassette, and that's when he instructed me to put all 24 tracks in the cord and just wipe it out. And he'd never done anything like this before. And I really kind of begged him to please, please, please just wait one day. Just wait one day. Just sleep on it. Just think about it. Because we had been working, you know, it was a typical long day. It was probably 20, 24 hours. I said, just, you know, just sleep on it. Can, can we erase it tomorrow? But he wouldn't hear it. And that's when he said, if you don't do it, I will. And he erased the whole thing. He just wanted the cassette. And that was it. You know, I, I didn't see it as being something that was too personal. But I think Prince probably did. Uh, he, he just didn't want it, he didn't want it heard. He didn't, he didn't want it known that this is how he felt. He had done expressions of sadness and regret before. But this one must have been close to the bone for him. And um, he... He simply did not want it released. But it's so odd to put that much care into something and then destroy it. Prince didn't want anyone to know the real him. And despite all that music, we only have a sense of who he was. But we know that he became obsessed with music as a way of making his own world where he was the king and he made the rules and people were free to be whoever they wanted as long as he was in charge. 
His music is all about personal liberation and being free to be who you want to be, which is exactly what he needed after a traumatic childhood where he was misunderstood and unwanted. He needed acceptance and affirmation and adulation. He was obsessed with music and obsessed with escaping and obsessed with becoming a rock star, and he was. His concerts were like religious events where he was worshipped as he mixed the best of James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Joni Mitchell, Little Richard, and his own amazing imagination and Jesus, and whipped all of that into an unforgettable stew, a career of iconic albums and epic performances that is unrivaled. But he got there because he was shaped and fueled by the pain of feeling abandoned by his mother. Even as an adult, I think deep down, Prince was a hurt little boy who wanted to make sure he was never needy again, never hurt again, never outcast again. He worked his way into the fantasy life of a global rock star, a world of stages and studios and limos and planes, and never having to say, you're sorry. Prince became the greatest ever, and he was propelled to that zenith because of his flaws his layers, his complexities, not in spite of them. Next, in the eighth and final chapter of Who Was Prince, we look at his end and see how his friends saw it coming and how they tried to help but couldn't and how they reacted after he was gone. That's the final chapter of Who Was Prince. Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall, our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.